Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before my first visit, I really had that Wakanda vision in my mind. You know, this... Black utopia almost, where Black people had found not only wealth, but like success and comfort. And when I visited for the first time, that was kind of obliterated. Greenwood was very highly diminished. Not only the massacre destroyed in 1921, but urban renewal destroyed much of the community decades later. And more striking than that for me, the very first time I visited, it was actually the anniversary of the race massacre. We were having a small vigil right there in the middle of the neighborhood. And there were three, four or 500 people streaming past us to go to this baseball game. Even in Tulsa, the place where this happened, this stuff was not widely known or at least not being widely acknowledged. And I felt like writing something that could really center the story, ground the story and the people there would be honestly a valuable contribution to our nation's understanding of itself. My name is Victor Lukerson, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today we're talking to Victor Lukerson, a journalist and author who works for bringing neglected Black history to light. His new book is Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street. Built from the Fire chronicles the history of Tulsa's Greenwood District in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. On May 30th, 1921, a mob terrorized the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, which was a flourishing black business district affectionately called Black Wall Street. In less than 24 hours, as many as 300 people were killed, 800 people were treated for injuries, and more than 1,000 homes and businesses, nearly 35 city blocks, were burnt to the ground. What's interesting about Victor's book is that it doesn't just cover the tragedy in the aftermath, but it paints a really grounded human story that provides the perspective of families who have called the community home for generations and where they've gone from there. Built from the Fire has been called Absorbing and Outstanding in a review by the New York Times and named an editor's choice pick by the Times. Victor's been a former staff writer at The Ringer and a business reporter for Time. His writing and research have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Wired, The Ringer, The Guardian, and Smithsonian. He also manages an email newsletter about Black history called Run It Back. So how did I first learn about Victor? Well, it turns out him and I are both not only from the same town of Montgomery, Alabama, but we both went to the University of Alabama and the same high school and the same junior high. And we grew up on the same part of town. And it turns out my sister knew his brother. Now, while I'm guessing Victor is younger and more accomplished than me, I think that actually started for him at an early age as he was the second black editor-in-chief at the Crimson White, the student newspaper at the University of Alabama. The closest I got to the Crimson White was having a friend, Joe Brown, who did some of the cartoons and music reviews there. But Victor really got in early and started scratching at the surface of a lot of pieces of history of Alabama and the university that people didn't want to cover or didn't want to talk about. 
Now, later on, Victor was also inducted into an honorary called the Blackburn Institute of Leadership Development and Civic Engagement Program, specifically focused on improving the state of Alabama. And Blackburn Institute was named after a former Alabama dean of students in the university's eventual peaceful integration between black and white students. And I was also in this honorary, but honestly, I didn't do much. And I'd imagine many of the talks I attended before leaving Alabama and the many emails I read over the years have influenced how I think about race and society, for better or worse. And there are some real leaders that come out of the org. Now, what's interesting is Victor kind of had the same experience. He was part of the org, but kind of not. And a few months ago, I got a Blackburn Institute email about this author and journalist named Victor Lukerson from Alabama, who's living in Tulsa, who's on a book tour about this book on Tulsa, Stopping Bride Brooklyn. You can kind of see where this is going. Anyway, for a really unique take on Tulsa, the people of Greenwood, and how we need to think about this and where we need to go as a society, be sure to pick up a copy of Built from the Fire wherever you get your favorite books. But let's jump right in for this really fun conversation that Sharon and I had with our new friend, Victor Lukerson. Victor, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Roman. Glad to be here. So, Victor, folks have heard about your work, but what they might not know is, I don't know, man, where are you from? I am from uh, your hometown, Roman, Montgomery, Alabama. Our hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. Two dudes from the same hometown. I don't think, besides Roman's sister, I don't think we've actually had another guest from Montgomery, right? Wow, we need to go check the notes on that one. Well, here's the other thing. Victor and I, when we were chatting, it was through a University of Alabama thing Mm -hmm. that we were both part of. Yep. And we were chatting. And then Victor and I found out not only did we go to the same college and part of the same honorary, which we'll talk about, we went to the same high school. We went to the same junior high school. We grew up on the other side of town. What? From said high school. So lots of things we have to talk about, Victor. So we might we might have been at Looney's one day together. Who knows? (laughs) We were literally roller skating one day. Yeah. Did you, I guess, just depends on age, right? Like, Victor, I don't know how exactly older you are, but were you in the same schools at the same time together? No, I'm a few, I'm a few years behind Roman, so. Oh. Yeah, let's just reveal that Victor is younger and more accomplished than Sharon. We run into that a lot, though, Victor. Younger and much more accomplished people that we talk <laughs> that, to. That's why, that's why we do this podcast, <laughs> too. Uh... No, so, Victor, I, I got to ask, like, for you, uh, I, obviously, I have so many stories about Montgomery, Alabama, but what was that for you growing up? Can, can you tell us a story from your youth? Yeah, so I mean, I was born in Montgomery, lived there until 18. And my main memory of there is really honestly being desperate to get out. I think that's something that a lot of teenagers experience, but... No matter where in the country you are. Exactly, exactly. It felt like a very small, slow place to me when I was a kid. And it's been kind of interesting getting older and reflecting on it because, you know, Montgomery obviously has a lot of really important and powerful history, you know. Mm -hmm. It was the capital of the Confederacy, original capital. Um, the birthplace of the civil rights movement in some ways, um, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, uh, where Dr. King got his start. And mm-hmm. I know for me, when I was a kid, all of that history kind of rolled off of me. You know, it felt like it was America's history and not like my history. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think for me, only as I've gotten older and kind of come to appreciate all the sort of texture and complicated history of our, of our country, I've really come to appreciate the legacy of Montgomery in a more, in a more authentic way. When I was a kid, I was kind of just ready to get out, to be honest. Well, but there's something, you wrote an essay, and I can't remember which site it was on, but it was kind of where your love of writing started and kind of how that came to pass kind of in that Montgomery experience. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been writing since I was four or five years old. I remember being a little kid um, in the 90s and tooling around on my parents' typewriter. Like, it was like kind of like just past the typewriter era, but I had old parents, so they had one in the house. And so I remember tooling around on that as a kid. We had an MS-DOS computer, again, like after Windows had dropped, but we still had, we were still doing MS-DOS for some reason. Yep. Represent yep. old school. Yeah, yeah. So um, part of having like parents who were born like in the early 50s, but um, I would write stories on the typewriter on MS-DOS. I had reams of notebooks. And back then I was just like imagining these worlds and these stories that I wanted to tell. And so in some ways, maybe Montgomery being a little slow. And also like, I have an older brother, but he's 13 years older than me. So I was sort of functionally an only child, you know? And so I had a lot of time to myself and this, what I felt was a very slow place. And so I would just write and write and write constantly. And so really since I was five years old, um, I've considered myself to be a writer. What were some of the stories you were writing about? You know, I think when I was really little, it was like kind of traditional stuff, like haunted house stories. I remember as an elementary school kid, I wrote a parody series of the Magic School Bus. And so I replaced all the characters on the, sh- on the show with my friends. And I would like present that at show and tell. And so that was a really fun uh, experience. But I think when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old, I started writing more stories that sort of reflected our country's history or political issues. I began really interested in writing stories that would be fictional, but would still sort of be capturing something about the way America is. Like I remember I wrote a story when I was about 12 about this small town that televised, uh, they televised executions on like closed circuit television. That was the premise of the story. Wow. And so it's this very like weird, like Twilight Zone-esque kind of thing. And they had these gallows in the town and eventually like they end up like hanging one of the people who's opposed to them or whatever. And so I kind of write these stories eventually that were kind of like digging into our nation's history in some kind of way. Almost like it wasn't like I had any sort of like conscious decision to do that, but that kind of became what I gravitated towards. And maybe in some way it led to me, you know, when I embraced journalism a little bit later, realizing that I wanted to be able to dive into um, our country's history in a more, in a more direct way. Well, that, that's another place I want to dig in, right? So we both went to the University of Alabama. And as soon as you get there, you join the Crimson White, the university newspaper. And you kind of get put on a certain beat talking about, you know, the history of the mascot and the, the creepy old costume and the Ferguson Student Union, right? Right, right. But then you started to scratch the itch. You know, like Alabama has this very... Rosa Parks, stand on the schoolhouse door, you know, that's it. And everything got better, right? And yeah, yeah, there was Jim Crow and that sucked. But can you talk a little bit about the motivations and kind of, I mean, I'm talking about Arthur and Lucy, frankly. Yeah, so I know that, again, like you said, Roman, when you're from Alabama, you get these kind of mythologies handed down to you. Rosa Parks was very tired and sat, sat down the bus because she was tired is probably the biggest one and the most kind of inaccurate one. You know, Rosa Parks was actually an activist and the entire sort of bus boycott was orchestrated very carefully in a lot of ways. But, you know, Bama has its university has its own version of that with the standing in the schoolhouse door and this idea that the first two black students, Vivian Jones and James Hood, sorry, Vivian Malone Jones and James Hood, arrived in 1963. George Wallace tries to prevent them from attending the school and sort of the federal government is able to sort of stop him. The government is forced to step aside. They get to go to school and you know, we all live happily ever after. Victor gets to be a black student there several decades later. But when I was uh, a freshman at the school, I was going to write a story about um, the stand in the schoolhouse door. And it was in my research that I kind of like discovered for myself that those were not actually the first black students. There had actually been a black student at University of Alabama in 1956 named Authorine Lucy. 
And she had actually been run, literally run around campus, um, chased around campus by a white mob. You know, I actually learned um, a little bit later that the Ku Klux Klan was based in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the 1950s yeah. and 60s. Yeah. And so the Klan and others literally chased this student around campus. Um, she was forced to cower in a basement library and the university forced her to resign after three days. They said it was for her own safety, but really they didn't want to address um, the racism and white supremacy of the era that was really, literally had a chokehold on that school. And so when I was a freshman, I had sort of been assigned to write a story about the Sandlin Schoolhouse door, but the most of the story became about Arthur and Lucy. I felt like that was something that, something that none of my peers knew anything about and felt really vital for us to know, to really understand sort of the true history of our school uh, and our state. How did that change the way you chose to write, the kind of stories you wanted to chase afterwards, be it at the Crimson White? I mean, you moved into kind of like a lot of us do. You moved into tech and you started writing in tech. But like, how did you kind of carry that torch internally on what you actually wanted to do? Because obviously that leads to a very specific place that we're here to talk about today. But like, what happened from that moment after the author and Lucy story? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it gave me more courage to challenge established narratives. Because even when I was at UA, you know, I later wrote some stories um, and led some coverage. I later became the editor of the school newspaper. So I was both writing and sort of like envisioning what we should be covering um, as, a, as an organization. And so, for example, the names of buildings became a big fascination for me on the UA campus. Because if you walked around the quad when Roman or I were in school, there are a lot of buildings named after Confederate generals, Klan members, even eugenicists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the Honors College building at the University of Alabama is named after a eugenicist, or was uh, his name is not. Yeah, and we and we don't and we don't know. I mean, I literally didn't know that until you just told me now. Like, but it's just like, oh, that's the X Y Z building, right? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I actually wrote a lot of stuff about that um, when I was in school, and it's kind of interesting because you know what's kind of interesting about student media is you just take a lot of L's when you're a student journalist, you know. <laughs> You write it's about all this practice. Stuff. It's all practice, right? Yeah, yeah. You're so passionate and you're just saying all these injustices and it's just like getting stomped down by the administration or the student government, whoever. And so that was an example of something that we wrote about. Hey, wait, can, you, can you talk about that? Oh, so yeah. I thought you were saying the L is just getting it out and no one cares. That's like, what I was thinking too. But you were getting pushback from administration. What, what, what was that like? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was the editor of the school newspaper, actually... Well, let me back up a little bit. People should understand that the white Greek system at Alabama, which I think just got a lot of new attention because there's a new documentary on HBO about yeah, um, the yeah. Greek system at UA. Fraternities and sororities, yeah. Yeah, correct. Fraternities and sororities. So all the white fraternities and sororities are um, segregated at UA. They, don't, they did not allow black students into them um, when I was in school. And so my first year as the editor of the Crimson White, we actually wrote a series of stories about that. We found, we identified some young black women who had applied and were not accepted, wow. seemingly because of their race. You know, it's not stated, but um, it was understood. Well, it's like, it's like this, it's a, it's a subtle thing. It's this like normalization of the way things are mm. in the South. And I don't know about you, Victor, like you've left as well, but you're still kind of in the South between going from Georgia to Oklahoma. But like, it wasn't until like I left and I moved to the Midwest and then the East Coast or overseas that I would like recount stuff like unknowingly mm -hmm. about, oh, yeah, we had, yeah, this week is Robert E. Lee, Martin Luther King Day. What are you doing? And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? And right. Or the segregated Greek system. Like for us, it was just kind of the way it was. Right. Because mm -hmm. no one was calling it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, certainly when I was in UA, that's when I sort of began to start calling it out. And I yeah. know that, you know, when we wrote this article and we talked to these black women who had not been accepted, 
the university's response was that the Greek organizations were private institutions and could do what they wanted to. Mm. Like that was literally their response, which you published in the paper. And that was BS because they might have sense to be private organizations, but they're literally getting these um, beneficial bonds and other real estate. Yeah, yeah. They're getting all these perks from the university, from the state government, essentially. Yeah. Um, to operate. And so it really was kind of like a BS response, but that's what I meant by like, kind of like taking L's, like take, identifying these issues and problems and then sort of feeling like we were being ignored. So it's been interesting, I guess, in the last, you know, really since George Floyd to see a lot of those things that I was writing about as a student really kind of come to the fore and actually become changed, uh, you know, in the last few years. Did you ever experience pushback from the student body whenever you wrote anything? Did anyone ever write back into you or respond? Or Well, I could open, I could open up a huge can of worms here called The Machine, but I don't know if we have time for that, Roman. So. <laughs> what? Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, machine? at minimum. Minimum. Uh, I, I do think, let's not open up the full can of worms, yeah. but I think you should describe the can and the label on the can right, for right. folks who don't get it. Because it's an acknowledged thing with my my white, my Asian, my black friends that I went to Alabama with. It was just kind of this, you knew it was there and it was what it was. I don't know, man. It's just this weird thing. And it was one of the many reasons, not the only reason that I was like, I got to leave. Right. I got to get out. Like, Systems of control and power exist everywhere. I want to be clear in corporate America and tech startups and venture capital in media, right? But it's not as like overt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please describe the can of worms. Okay. So very briefly, the easy way to understand it, the machine is like the Southern and Alabama equivalent of skull and bones. Mm-hmm. It's a secret society on the UA campus that controls campus politics. And many people who are members of it end up becoming powerful in state politics. So there have been former governors who are members of the machine, um, church of the UA board, members of the machine. It's an all-white organization. And they basically coerce and pressure Greek students to sort of do their bidding, sort of voting for the candidates they choose and all this kind of stuff. And in the past, they've been involved in actual physical intimidation of students. So they have this sort of like notorious, mythic, legacy on campus. And so when I was writing about um, the Greek system, and then later we wrote a series that actually challenged the machine and kind of investigated their finances and all this kind of stuff. And so I got a couple of like email threats then, like, you know, watch it when you're driving home, the machine's watching you. So I got I got that kind of stuff, which I think lots of CW editors have had that in the past. But yeah, um, it really is kind of like, to Raman's point, it reflects, I think, the way power actually works in society. And so I think having covered that in college in some ways helped me be more prepared to deal with analyzing power structures in Tulsa, you know, a few years later. Yeah. Well, so so two things. One, you're a rabble rouser. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that term, too. I, I have to ask before we kind of get to the journey to Tulsa, like, as you're doing this, right? And I'm a parent now. Sharon is as well. Like, what are mom and dad thinking about all of this while you're while you are rousing rabbles? Um, I don't know. I didn't talk to my parents too much when I was in college. You know what I mean? I was in that phase of like, I'll see y'all at Christmas, but I'm, I'm doing my thing. You don't get me, mom. <laughs> they don't, they didn't even know you were, so they had no idea you were up to all this stuff. I would not say, I think I was, I would not go to them for advice about what I was doing or addressing right. and that kind of thing. I do think, yeah. you know, this is a little bit further ahead in the story, but I've actually engaged my parents a lot more about both my work and also like, our history as black people um, yeah. doing this Tulsa work, you know? Yeah. Like, I've learned a lot more about their history and their legacy and this, the challenges they faced under Jim Crow on the last five years than I ever knew um, as a young person. And so that's been really interesting. But 
back then I was kind of in my own little cloistered world, just like kind of grinding it out at UA with me and the other students. I should mention this actually, ironically. So the Crimson White is notoriously labeled anti-Greek because we investigate the machine and the racism and things like this. But the Crimson White's office was actually in an old fraternity house when I was a student. <laughs> we could literally see fraternity row from our old fraternity building when I was the editor of the newspaper. So that was a, that was a really fun irony. And so, Victor, you you were rousing rabbles and doing exposés and basically, you know, making a real difference, kind of scratching the surface, but creating change. And then after you graduated, you kind of went into a pretty normal journalist path, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, you know, it was kind of an interesting time when I graduated in 2012 because it was sort of like the beginning of the ongoing media collapse, you know? Uh-huh. Traditional newspaper jobs are drying up really fast. Probably like post-recession, I would say, is kind of when the media started started collapsing and hasn't stopped since. And so I actually almost got a job at a local newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, which I'd never been to. Huh. Uh, that was just me kind of like, you know, when you're a senior in college, you just send out your resume to 50 places and just pray for the best. Right. And so uh, they offered me a job there. But at the very same time, Time Magazine offered me a job. Mm-hmm. I had been an intern at Sports Illustrated the summer before in New York, thanks to some basic alumni connections, more or less. And um, Time Magazine ends up offering me a job, and it's to cover tech and business. And I really had no background in that, but obviously Time Magazine says, hey, do you love business? You say, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm the biggest business nerd of all time. Totally, yeah. And so I just put on that mask for like six or seven years. That's great. Because, you know, I wanted to get in the industry, and I wanted to be in New York and sort of see what that, would, that world was like. And so I, I worked for them for like four years covering Silicon Valley a lot. Actually, I went to cover Google and Facebook out there, um, Uber and Lyft a little bit later. And so that really was my kind of world for the most part for seven years, both that time and then later at a media startup called The Ringer. Yeah. And, and so I think that you, you write the story online and we'll post a link to the show notes of like when you're at The Ringer and the story you decided to write about Tulsa. But I just want to bust straight into your book a little bit if it's okay. So the book is Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street. And it was just published by Penguin Random House a few months ago. Before we get into the book, I just want to put out, lay out some of the facts for folks. Is people have, I think, heard of Tulsa. They, they now, it's kind of come into the conscious a little more in the last few years. But on May 30th, 1921, a mob terrorized the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, which was a flourishing black business district that was affectionately called Black Wall Street. In less than 24 hours, as many, as many as 300 people were killed. 800 people were treated for injuries and more than 1,000 homes and businesses, nearly 35 city blocks were burned down. And I want to quote you. According to eyewitness accounts, the scope of the attack was equal to war. Homeowners shot dead in their front yards, planes dropping turpentine bombs on the building, a machine gun firing buildings on a neighborhood church. It was a living nightmare and for many decades, Tulsa treated as such dark apparition of the mind that might fade from memory as long as it was never regret. And it's just like, you know, we often talk about Selma and Rosa Parks and the stand in the schoolhouse door of our alma mater and, and other moments of the South. And again, it's like this hazy myth, a vague memory. So the, the last thing I'm just going to quote that I loved is like your Ringer article. I think uh, there was like a Tulsa local poet that you saw and he said, don't you realize that Greenwood was Wakanda before Wakanda? Hmm. Why do you have to write this? book? Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to that moment I met that poet. His name is Fatodi. He's a great guy. And, you know, I knew a little bit about Greenwood and Black Wall Street um, before my first visit to the community in 2018. And, you know, in my head, from having read a book or two about it, I really had that Wakanda vision in my mind. You know, this 
black utopia almost where black people had found not only wealth, but like success and comfort. And when I visited for the first time, that was kind of obliterated. A, Greenwood was very highly diminished. Not only the massacre destroyed in 1921, but urban renewal and highway construction destroyed much of the community decades later. So it's very small. There's like basically a block and a half of stuff that you might classify as sort of historic Greenwood. And more striking than that for me, the very first time I visited, it was actually the anniversary of the race massacre. So it was May 31st, 2018. And Fatodi was reciting his poem. We were having a small vigil right there in the middle of the neighborhood. But, you know, there were maybe 30 people at this vigil that I was at. And there were probably three, four, or 500 people streaming past us to go to this baseball game. There's a minor league baseball stadium in Greenwood, literally on, on land that where black people were killed uh, 102 years ago. And so that was, just, that was just a huge disconnect for me. And it kind of made me sort of understand that even in Tulsa, the place where this happened, this stuff was not, it was not widely known or at least not being widely acknowledged. And I felt like writing something that could really center the story, ground the story and the people there would be honestly a valuable contribution to our nation's understanding of itself. So I really went into this with, you know, big ambitions to tell a big, important story about who we are as a country. Yeah. And I mean, you actually moved to Tulsa and you lived there for three years while while writing this book. You know, I mean, I think there's kind of like a couple things like as you're kind of embedded in the community, kind of what are the things you're seeing and hearing? But then, you know, when you level it out, what's been kind of the response and now that not just your book, but now that people are talking about it, is it the it's in the past? I mean, you talk about some of the descendants of the residents of Greenwood and kind of their issues with the city and the state. What are kind of those micro stories that you kind of started to learn while you were living in the community? Yeah. So, you know, for me, this was a really new experience as a journalist. So like I said, I used to work for Time Magazine and The Ringer. And there's this term in reporting that people say called parachute journalism. It's kind of a derisive term for how national media operates and the idea that often when a crisis unfolds, like a shooting or something, horrific happens in the country, all these national journalists will like descend on one city for like four or five days. They, mm -hmm. they parachute in and then they get out with their story. Yeah. And so, you know, that was kind of my job for a long time. I would go to places and stay there for four or five days and sort of get what I could. Then you write what you can, then you just move on with your life. And, you know, my first story about Greenwood sort of functioned like that. I went there for three or four days and wrote a piece for The Ringer. And I realized that if I was going to do a book and really sort of do justice to this not only the story, but the people there, that I could really only do that by uh, moving there and getting to know the folks there in a really intimate way. And so for me, that really, that focus really unlocked and sort of came into, came into focus when I uh, met the Goodwin family. Mm -hmm. So if you're on Greenwood Avenue where this vigil was happening in 2018 and you're looking north and you just turn your head to the right, you'll see this uh, old auto garage with Oklahoma Eagle right on the front of it. And so that is actually where this black newspaper is now housed. And so I, w I actually visited there on my second trip to Tulsa, just a few months after the Ringer piece was published. And I was able to meet uh, Jim Goodwin. He's an 83-year-old attorney who owns a newspaper. And his family's been in Greenwood since 1914. Unfortunately, I was, I was late the first time I met Jim. So that, <laughs> that didn't go over great. But luckily, he was actually really generous with his time. And he unspooled for me this really amazing family history they have about how they were living in um, Jim Crow, Mississippi, in Water Valley, um, not too different from a lot of towns in Alabama at the time, um, you know, under the heel of white supremacy. And Water Valley was a place where if a black man saw a white man approaching on the street, he's expected to scurry into the gutter. 
And so Jim's grandfather, J.H. Goodwin, said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. We got to get out of here. They actually were going to go to Waterloo, Iowa, but Oklahoma became the calling card. It was the sort of Eden of the West, basically, um, in the early 1900s. And so Jim and his, or J.H. Goodwin and his family came to Tulsa. They opened a business on Greenwood Avenue in 1915. Their home, their business, everything was destroyed in 21, but the good ones stayed and rebuilt and they helped their neighbors do the same. And so as I was able to sort of hear from Jim about what they'd experienced and sort of see that through line, it really sort of brought clarity to me about how I was going to structure my book. And so when you rebuild from the fire, there's a lot of different families and narratives and policies being analyzed, but the good ones are kind of like a North Star and they sort of guide you through the story. Today, Jim's niece, Regina Goodwin, is actually a legislator representing Greenwood um, in Oklahoma. She's one of I think two black women in, this, in the House of Representatives. And so I actually shouted her a lot in the Capitol uh, the last couple of years and was able to sort of capture both her quest for reparations and other forms of justice, but also sort of this retrenchment we're seeing politically right now and sort of some of the mindsets about limiting people's rights, putting minorities in their place, so to speak. That was really prevalent in Oklahoma and across the country in the early 1900s. And I think it's becoming more prevalent again today. So it was really interesting sort of seeing through this one family, all the, all the different ways to understand history, both on a personal level and through Regina um, on a policy level. When you were gathering these stories and framing up this book, what was in your mind of what your intention was? Was it to only feature the stories of the community or were you hoping for some other changes that would happen? You know, I think I've actually gone through a big evolution with this. So. I think as I mentioned earlier, when I first came to Greenwood, I had this kind of black utopia in my head. Yeah. And so that was really what I wanted. I wanted to like sort of like recover, excavate this black utopia for people, really for young black folks my age, because back then I know a lot of folks I knew didn't even, had never even heard of Black Wall Street. And right. So like, can I, can I kind of recreate this for us in some way? Yeah. And then, you know, it was surprising for me to learn in my research that, you know, for example, Greenwood had a lot of grinding poverty throughout its history. People in Greenland had different perspectives on the best way forward for Black progress. And so I sort of had to take a big step back from that utopian concept and really try to portray it more as an authentic community. Mm -hmm. And so I think my process went from sort of almost saying, can I preserve this thing behind glass almost? Or I think one time I wrote about how I wanted originally to create like a diorama. And you could just watch little people on their little routes yeah. for our entertainment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah totally. And instead of that, I said, instead of you watching the diorama, maybe I can put you on the ground. So you're a person in Greenwood mm -hmm. and you see how this place feels like your own neighborhood. Like you see how these people remind you of people in your own life. Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully through that human connection, we can unlock, you know, the ability to um, not only want to affect change for that community, but for our own. So I guess I'm sort of of the mind that you don't have to go. You don't have to go far these days to get a um, political opinion about what to think about X Y Z issue of the day. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so I think it's more valuable if someone's going to spend hours and hours with my book that they get that human connection. And I think you're more likely to sort of convince someone of whatever your argument for justice is if you can connect them on a human level as opposed to sort of going on a political diatribe to kind of like bully them into thinking what you want them to. Well, yeah, I mean we're we're creatures of story, right? And yeah. I think if you can unlocking the empathy in someone right. to, to truly kind of understand and live in someone's shoes. Greenwood's really interesting in the sense that you heard, you knew Tulsa was a thing. And I, I think I might have told you offline, like my first trip to Tulsa 
with my black brother-in-law on a cross-country road trip more than a decade ago, right? Like we stopped in Tulsa and stayed with some friends of friends uh, who were white. And I don't even know if my brother-in-law knew it or if he didn't want to bring it up with me, but it's just this, it has kind of risen into the conscious books like yours. It was, it was literally in the HBO series Watchmen, right? right? And this kind of uh, future fiction dystopia, like rooted in a common thread in our history, right? What, what is the role of the media with this now? I mean, is it just showing up on CNBC and talking about it like you have? Is it getting this in the culture? Is it finding the other stories like this? Mm. What do you think has to happen to kind of really, it's not necessarily just about awareness. It's about, you know, thinking and change or, or recognizing what could be. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really interesting question. And something that I've had to think about more carefully now that I'm in a, I sort of define my own role in all this more specifically now than I did in the past. Because, for example, when I worked at Time Magazine, there are all these rules about what you could say or not say. And, you know, I actually remember when I worked at Time, for example, we were not allowed to go to, go to Black Lives Matter protests. And so my job sort of prescribed for me how I engage with a lot of these really complicated topics. Um, but, you know, now I'm a free agent. I do what I want. And so that is exciting in a lot of ways, but also sort of forces me to sort of think about my role as a journalist and writer more thoughtfully, I think. And so, you know, I think, first of all, that awareness is actually still part of it. I was a little surprised. I went on a book tour this summer. Mm-hmm. So I traveled all over the country and I was a little surprised when I meet people like on airplanes or in trains who had never heard of Tulsa Race Massacre one time. I met several people like that. Mm-hmm. So I still think actually, despite all of this attention, we live in such a fractured media environment that just making people aware of it is still at some level what needs to be done. And I also am aware from my historical research that we've kind of been here before in terms of, you know, documents being produced about Greenwood and governmental attention on the subject in the late 1990s a lawsuit was even filed and went all the way to the u.s supreme court and you know so that was going on in the 90s and early 2000s but then fast forward to 2018 no one's heard of this and so i think that maintaining a certain momentum around the fact that justice has justice has not been served is really important and so i think that's mm-hmm. an important role media plays to sort of say like hey it's been 102 years. There's still no one who's done anything about this. You know, we need to sort of come together and think through that a little bit more. I think an accountability for it is important, mm. but it's that's not going to solve everything. You know, it's not just the, oh, we recognize it happened. Here's a plaque. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I think I in my book, I try to sort of puncture hollow symbolism in the way it's sort of leveraged often by powerful governments and other entities. Yeah, we did it. Here you go. We did, we, we did the ribbon cutting. Yeah, yeah. But I think right now we're in an interesting, interesting place because there's actually a pretty broad-based reparations movement unfolding across the United States. You know, we've actually seen reparations in some form passed in um, Evanston, Illinois, um, dealing with housing injustice in the past. The state of California is currently considering a very sweeping uh, reparations uh, legislation that could award hundreds of millions of dollars to Black California residents, potentially. So I think that there is some sort of, there's strength in numbers, but also strength in sort of like proving that it's viable. You know, I think that often people who don't even want to sort of go down that path of reparations want to say, well, well, how would you pay for it? Or like, who would get it? And all those kind of questions. Yeah. But right now we're seeing across in cities across America that, you know, there are people willing to work through all those difficult nitty gritty questions. And I think when you can sort of like prove that part of it and say, okay, we Let's get past the mechanics part because we can figure that out. Let's ask the the moral question about this, the ethical question about this. 
And again, that question, which all this kind of goes back to, like, who we are, who are we as a country? And, you know, does it matter all the things we did in the past that shaped who we are today? I think that's kind of the mm-hmm. core of the question here about reparations and whether um, we as a people will ever pursue it in, in depth. Well, I think it's, it's, it's the accounting, but it's also what are we going to do differently? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think about the, the Holocaust remembrance movement, you know, around the world, mm-hmm. right? It's a powerful thing and, and it's worth talking about. And I literally on one of my other podcasts, we just reread Mouse uh, about it, right? And it's a thing that has to be taught and we can't forget about it because we have to think about it. And it's not just pointing out anti-Semitism, it's pointing out all of this, right? There is some irony to what's happening in the Middle East with Palestinians, whatever. But it's just like, it has to be in our conscious so we can take action to behave differently, if right. that makes sense. But then at the same time, history has a short-term memory. The song has been written. We do the shit over and over again. I, I think just some of the bad actors are getting smarter and more subtler with it. Well, I also, I mean, but I think books like this, media like this, stories like this, where you can tell it however you need to tell it. Like you said, Victor, I mean, I'm actually surprised to hear that you guys weren't able to go to the BLM protests. You know, you've created this piece of, this piece of content now that, that came from a truthful place. It, it's your, it's your way that you're, you want to tell other people's stories. And I think that that's hopefully part of a future solution, right? It's even just shedding light onto things in a way that isn't pointed or filtered or regulated in some way. As much as we here in this country talk about free speech and, and all of that stuff, like the media outlets do have certain guidelines that you can and can't follow. Yeah, definitely. And that's another way that I think, like I talked earlier about how the economics of media have changed a lot since I was in college. And I think also sort of the methodology has changed in that sense. Yeah. You know, so I think the idea of quote unquote objectivity has been challenged a lot. Really, since Donald Trump got elected, is kind of what the impetus of it all was. But in many ways, also the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, exposed some of the challenges of stated objectivity. Mm-hmm. For example, if you think about George Floyd's murder, the original police report for that said something to the effect of, "Oh, he had a medical condition, and that's why he died." And so, sort of the traditional, like if you're in college and you're learning about journalism, at least when I was there. And you get a police report, it's like a fact. So you're just going to take that fact and put it in the newspaper because that's, you know, you've, you've kind of done your job by then. Right, right. But I think now we're seeing people being more willing to probe the institutions that actually distribute the facts. You know what I mean? Because they have their own, yeah. they have their own motivations for the, the quote-unquote facts that they're giving out. Yeah. It almost sounds like it's like investigative journalism, you know? Like you, like you have to proactively try to figure out what is truthful and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's actually good that that mentality is sort of trickling down not only to like the the spotlight cast, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. but to the students who are learning about how you actually do this on a day-to-day basis um, in college, in the college classroom. So then that's actually a big change that's been in some ways kind of controversial in the media industry. But I think sort of where it, the equilibrium you arrive at is that we're actually going to be more authentic and more honest about what's going on. And that's a good thing for an informed citizenry. Yeah. And so related to that, you, you mentioned you went on a book tour and we're, we're talking about the book now and, and it's probably creating a lot of buzz. What has the reception been so far to the book and how are people responding and has anything surprised you as you've been sharing it with people? No, it's been an amazing experience. Like I said, I started writing when I was five years old, so I've known I wanted to write a book around since then. <laughs> and so this has been a really, really special um, year and a special time. 
you know, I think it's been a lot of different experiences. It was really satisfying to have my first event um, here in Greenwood. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually at the Greenwood, there's a community center um, here in Greenwood where I had the event. It was like standing room only, um, packed crowd. And what's kind of cool about that event too is that like I'm a pretty, I guess you call me a rabble rouser, but I'm also kind of like a low key almost academic kind of dude and so i just want to say low-key kind of sounds like low-key <laughs> you're such a marvel nerd yeah i'm not i'm not a marvel anti-hero but <laughs> I, don't know. I, do, I do have multiple sides to me but no at the, at the greenwood event no i was like for example i explained redlining's history in greenwood and then like the crowd yeah. cheered like it was like it was a rally you know That's what I mean? awesome and i think what people were responding to and, and i've gotten this from people in the community who've had more time to sit with the book they like kind of seeing all the puzzle pieces fit together. Like, oh, we have this community that's been highly disinvested and we drive around and you can just tell, you know what I mean? And now somebody's actually put the puzzle pieces together that illustrate how the knee-jerk reaction that, oh, this must be the fault of people who live there is not true. And I think that's something that's been really powerful for people. So I've loved, honestly, hearing just from like folks in the neighborhood being like, oh yeah, like I read your book and like, help me understand my neighborhood a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So I actually don't, there's like sort of like the rapturous prey you can get, which is obviously very satisfying. Right. But it's kind of better to just like a regular person saying, oh yeah, I read that book and like, I learned a little bit, you know, like that's yeah. actually a lot for like a regular person to, I don't say regular, but you know, somebody's not, in, somebody's not in a critic or that kind of thing. A walk, a right. walk about the stuff, yeah. So actually engage with your work in a way where they internalize even one thing from it. That's a big deal to me, so. So I, w- I want to ask an obvious question, but I, but I want, well, I want you to give me the most surprising answer you can for it. <laughs> Obviously, your mom and dad now do know what you're doing. I would assume they saw you on the news talking about this. They, they've seen you running around the country, pretty much running a rally with the lines, right, about red line. Right. What do mom and dad think about this now? How have they reacted to, again, not just the book and the work, but the approach you've chosen to take with this and with your career? And don't just be proud, because I'm sure they're very proud. I'm proud of you, Victor, as a kid from Montgomery. <laughs> um, it's never been an arc because, so there's a restaurant, I don't know if you know about this restaurant, Roman, but there's a restaurant called Fry Green Tomatoes in uh, Montgomery. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a Golden Corral equivalent. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when I was in 2019, I guess the start of the year, that's when I told them that I was going to quit my job and move to Tulsa and write this book. And... I don't know. Maybe this is part of the, the modern minority framework in some ways, but there's always been a little bit of like, oh, you could do that creative thing. Hmm, I don't know about that. You know, like. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, my older brother's an engineer and that always felt much more stable. I think when I was, I'm going to go be a writer and they were like, all right, well, we'll see how that goes. So I think there was a little bit of that dynamic, but obviously they were very supportive and sort of um, helped me sort of plan out how to do it in a way that I wouldn't starve or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was really great actually was that they actually got to come to Tulsa. My parents drove from Montgomery to Tulsa for the book launch. They were here for a week when the book came out. Nice. And so I think when they got to come see me, I think that really sort of... Oh, this is real. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also in terms of what was surprising to them, I know. So we went around Tulsa all the time, going to restaurants and whatever and showing them stuff. And everywhere we would go, people would come up to me like, hey, Victor, what's going on? Hey, Victor, can't wait for the book. It's like a sitcom almost. <laughs> like... Like, I put these plants around the neighborhood to make me seem popular. <laughs> and um, so anyway, my, later, my dad said, like, oh, wow, I can really tell that what you did was was valuable because, like, all these people from all these different walks of life are, like, connecting with you. So he just said that just from observing me out in the neighborhood and the folks that we were talking to, I think they sort of understood, like, yeah, what I had done was sort of 
deeper and more meaningful than when I would just send them my like Time Magazine articles home, you know? Yeah. It had gone beyond the ritualistic, oh, let me read my kid's blog because he sent it to me, you know? Right. I think we're ready for maybe a younger self question, Roman. What do you think? Sure, sure. Victor, so I mean, if you had to go back to, if you had to go back to young Victor, you know, hanging out at Baldwin or Lamp, you had to, to give him a little bit of advice of whatever kind of he's facing in the moment. What, what would you tell Victor today? Hmm. Nobody asked me this this whole time. Really? I think I would want him to know that it's okay to interrogate your history. I feel like when I was, I actually had a when I actually when I became a tech reporter, I had a little bit of trepidation about kind of going back to the writing about race because it's easy to get pigeonholed, you know. If you decide to sort of you're going to engage with America's racist history, or write about black issues with black people, it's very easy to sort of people to be, oh, that's just the thing you do. That's all you do. But, you know, when I was a kid, I had all these aspirations of writing about, like I said, the haunted houses and the magic school bus. I've always been somebody who's like very roaming in my interest and creativity. And so I think I maybe um, shied away from engaging very directly with writing about race in some ways for at different times in my life because I felt like, hey, I might get pigeonholed and B, it's a lot of trauma to have to excavate. Right. But I think I would probably tell him that like, you're going to find ways to connect with people on a different level if you want to sort of have that courage to dive into those issues. And it doesn't have to be everything you do, but I do think that I've kind of always had this inside of me and there were different times in my life where I didn't, I was just kind of nervous about pursuing it as much as I could have. So I'd probably just tell them, you know, and take it to history, learn about your family. Oh, I, I know what I tell them too. Interview your grandparents. Yes. Uh, that is my biggest regret of this process. Like I, I've learned so much about these other families' histories, but my grandmothers both passed away. Um, actually, when I became a professional writer right after I graduated college. And so I'll never have those stories from their own mouths. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think I would tell it my earlier self to interrogate not only like the history around you, but the history in your own family. Would you ever um, sit down with your parents now? Oh, yeah, that's on my list. Do an interview project with them? Yeah. Yes, that's literally what I've been telling. I need to get you. Thank you for reminding me, Sharon, because I said, when I finish this book, the first thing I'm going to do, and then there's always just more stuff to be done. Of course. Work, you know? Yep. But no, I've actually, like, even in even in my, like I said, so like I said earlier, I've learned a lot more about my family, um, just talking to them casually during my research about parallels. Mm-hmm. And so one story I got to get more information about is, so in the book, the Goodwin family, the family I mentioned who came from Mississippi, um, one member of their family was a gambling kingpin in Tulsa. He basically ran gambling in Greenwood in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And so I remember one day I told my mom about that. I was kind of surprised that this like pretty upstanding family had a sort of figure like that in their in their past. Are you the grandson of a gambling tycoon from Alabama? Yes. He was like, oh, yes. yeah, your, your granddad did the same thing. No <laughs> I was <way>. like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were in uh, Montevallo, Alabama, and he had a... He had a dive bar where he bootlegged, and he also, I shouldn't be telling all this on the air. Um, he also, the police would come to my parent, my grandparents' house yeah. every Sunday, and like, the bribe would go down. What? Uh, it was crazy. I never knew any of this stuff until a couple of years ago. My mom told me all about it, but it's not on tape yet, and so it definitely needs to be to have that documentation, Andrew, to really get the beginning to end version of the story. I got it one more. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been obsessed with this what led to Sharon and I doing this podcast is this obsession with kind of oral history through conversation. Cause mm-hmm. this is the lowest friction way, you know, 
pour a cup of tea or a coffee, even when my parents visit, it's those late nights after the kids are in bed, sitting around talking on the couch. And I have an older sister. And sometimes like whenever mom and dad are visiting either of us, one of us will text like, did you know mom and dad moved to Miami for six months? Like when they were in their 20s, we're like, what? Wow. Like one of us knows that the other one doesn't. And mm. it's not necessarily about recording and capturing. I mean, that, that I think the technology is good for it and the technology for transcribing it and having a Zoom and hit and record is great. But it's, we get so busy with our lives that we don't have right. conversations. And then the time slips. And I mean, if I can only tell you one thing to tell old Victor this, right, is make the space because... Time is a fleeting thing. That's, right. that's kind of what I'm starting to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think when it, I know we're like totally going down this path now, but when I think about parents, grandparents, and those types of roles, we only know them at, in that role. You know, like mm-hmm. I. Yeah, we don't know them as adults. No. Yeah. Like I've heard about, so my dad is my dad, right? I've only known him as my father and he's been married to my mother and that's my frame of him. And then like I'll randomly hear a story about him from like when he was in his early 20s and doing all sorts of things that they would do in the 70s, you know? And I'm like, wait, dad, what? Like how many people and what types of drugs? And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like what? Like, who are you? And it's one of those. And it's also those things. It's things that they would never tell you until you became an adult either. right? Right. So Right. You never ask. Because you never the, ask. And they, you know, probably yeah. when you're 12, you don't want to tell your daughter that you were whatever growing pot in your backyard or whatever, whatever the heck my parents were really doing. And you guys really have some vices in your history. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I've got some hidden yeah. stuff too I need to find out about. You know, Victor and I, we come from gangster families, right, Victor? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm now learning I'm even less cool than I was <laughs> compared to you guys. Well, Victor, we've Totally love this conversation, and we end every single chat with a speed round. So are you ready for a speed round, Victor? I can do it. Let's go. Oh, that's the wrong answer. (laughs) The right answer is always no. Oh, my God. What is this? Who are you people? (laughs) All right. Here we go. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Oh, man. I can't go fast for this. Uh, uh, That no one expects. One thing about me that no one expects. Oh, probably that I can actually speak well in public. I'm very low key, but I can get really animated in a public setting. Yeah, you can like, you know, get a rally going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's a book or a movie or even a TV show that has characters that you relate to? I'm going to go with uh, The Wire. Oh, my gosh. Man after my own heart. We haven't heard that one yet, too. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a very good one. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, Everyone everybody. on this podcast before Victor had terrible taste. That's, right. Oh, that's <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> the fact that no one has said The Wire, the greatest show of all time. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. There's so many strivers on that show, and I'm a striver, so. Nice. What is your favorite mom dish? Ooh, I'm going to go with baked macaroni and cheese, which she doesn't make anymore because like, my dad has health issues I haven't had in a long time. Yeah. Uh, but the baked macaroni and cheese from back in the day. Yum. Nice. What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food. I'm going to go peas. I really don't like the texture and the... No, peas. Yeah. We're on the same page. Yeah. Mac and cheese is your favorite. Peas are your least favorite. You know, you would get along great with my kids. (laughs) 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 Who's someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Andre 3000. Easy question. (laughs) Go go on. I mean... So many reasons why. I mean, I'm a writer, and the way that he writes and connects thoughts 
like I think there's different kinds of good rappers. There's some rappers who are really like Eminem, who's just like technically proficient. And it's just like all these words being crammed into a small space, which is fine. Yeah. But Andre is so like, he just like, he can connect really complex ideas with really simple metaphors. And that's just like, to me, that's the key of being an amazing writer. And so I'd love to talk to him about his writing, his writing approach. So Victor, what does being a modern minority mean? Hmm. I don't know. I think it's, I think that we're in an interesting time where in some ways, maybe a lot of our parents hope that we wouldn't have, they would, we would not be dealing with the issues they dealt with in terms of discrimination, policies that are trying to undermine us and all this kind of stuff. And so it kept a lot of things from us. But now that it's more clear that, you know, to your point, Ramin, that history often cycles through itself, we're going to have to adjust that stuff more directly. So I guess to me, being a modern minority is really about understanding that the challenges our ancestors faced are still part of our legacy and, you know, finding ways to continue those legacies in ways that both acknowledge the past, but also, you know, move us forward from it. That's great. Well, Victor, uh, beyond just your book, I, I think your journey and, and more importantly, your thoughtful approach to things, just it's just awesome to see that Someone like you is out there doing the things you're doing, especially when they're from Montgomery, Alabama. So uh, thanks for doing it. I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. You guys, I really appreciate this. It's been, it's been great. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModMinPod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.